We start tonight with some significant breaking news. The New York Times is confirming that Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, has testified to a federal grand jury as part of special counsel Jack Smith's ongoing investigations into Trump's mishandling of classified information and his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. This is a major development, and we are going to talk about it in just a minute with Representative Jamie Raskin, who served on the January 6th committee. But we start with Mar-a-Lago. At this point, you have probably seen a picture of Trump's Florida resort, once the winter getaway of heiress Marjorie Merriweather Post. Now, Mar-a-Lago is massive. It sits on about 20 acres of land. It has more than 50 bedrooms, and it has all the hallmarks of luxury, all of the fancy stuff. Italian stone and Spanish tiles and lots of marble and gold-plated fixtures and expensive rugs. It also has a golf course and a ballroom, a boutique, and not one, but two swimming pools. Here they are. One is by the beach in front, and the other sits right in the middle of basically everything. Now, I point these pools out to you, not just because pool envy is a real thing, especially in the summer months, but because these pools, one of these pools, is now at the center of the special counsel's investigation into Trump's handling of classified documents. And it is at the center of that for a very weird reason. CNN was the first to report that, quote, an employee at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence drained the resort's swimming pool last October and ended up flooding a room where computer servers containing, containing surveillance video logs were kept. So, hmm. Now, whether the flooding of the IT room where, oh, hey, the surveillance video logs are kept, whether that was intentional or just a really unfortunate mistake, we do not know. But we do know that the Department of Justice investigators are very suspicious of the timing here because the flooding took place right around the same time that prosecutors were issuing subpoenas trying to obtain security camera footage from Mar-a-Lago. So again, hmm. Now, the flooding and that subpoena, that was a culmination of a months-long battle on the part of the DOJ to get its hands on this Mar-a-Lago security camera footage. And that subpoena was not the department's first one, not by a long shot. In June of last year, government officials had been fighting with Trump for months to retrieve all the classified documents he had in his possession down at Mar-a-Lago. So the DOJ issued its first subpoena for security camera footage on June 24th. As a result of that first subpoena, DOJ officials got some of that security footage, and it showed two Trump aides, including former valet Walt Nauta and a maintenance worker named Carlos de Oliveira. It showed those two men moving boxes into a storage room on June 2nd. That was one day before FBI agents were invited down to Mar-a-Lago to collect documents, which is, wow, okay, the timing there. But there were gaps in that security camera footage, which given the circumstances, people moving boxes out of the storage room, that was curious. So the department issued another subpoena for the video footage from outside the storage room, and it issued that subpoena a few weeks later. And while the DOJ was waiting for this, investigators found out that Mr. D. Oliveira, the employee who had been helping move the boxes into the Mar-a-Lago storage room, it 
they found out that Mr. De Oliveira called a Mar-a-Lago IT worker asking how the security cameras worked and um, how long images remain stored in the system. Just asking for a friend, just just wondering. Again, Mr. De Oliveira is the same guy who drained the pool in October, causing a flood in the room where computer servers containing, containing surveillance video were kept. It keeps popping up when things go wrong. So after the pool flood, Jack Smith's office issued a third subpoena asking the Trump organization to preserve all additional footage. Keep it away from any pools, please. And around that same time in October, Mr. Na- Mr. Nauda, the valet, the other guy who was involved in all of this, he reportedly changed lawyers and stopped collaborating with investigators. We do not know how Jack Smith's team learned about the pool incident and what other things they spotted on the camera footage they did get. But for months now, we have known that all the employees from Mar-a-Lago have provided their testimony. And so the special counsel probably has a very full picture of what has been going down at Mar-a-Lago all these months. And now that team, the special counsel's team, is presumably evaluating whether all of these incidents, the moving of the boxes, the refusal to return the documents, the gaps in the security footage, the pool drainage, whether these were random events or an orchestrated effort on the part of Donald Trump and his employees to interfere with this investigation. Now, the latest twist here is the surprise revelation last night that a previously unknown federal grand jury in South Florida has recently started hearing testimony in this case. The New York Times reports the grand jury in Florida is separate from the one that has been sitting for months in Washington. Among those who have appeared before the Washington grand jury in the past few months or have been subpoenaed by it, people familiar with the investigation said, are more than 20 members of Trump's Secret Service detail. As for the Florida grand jury, which began hearing evidence last month, only a handful of witnesses have testified to it or are scheduled to appear before it. But at least one witness has already testified and another is set to testify tomorrow. Joining us now is former acting U.S. Solicitor General Neil Katyal. He is also an MSNBC legal analyst. Neil, thank you so much for being here to help me understand the theories of this case. I mean, well, I think I have a sense of the theory of the case, but first your thoughts on these two grand juries and why, what, what that signals, how you read those indicators. Yeah, so Jack Smith is presenting now, it looks like, between, before, before two grand juries, one in Florida and one in Washington, D.C. I can tell you that the grand jury in Florida and the prosecutors there aren't there to enjoy the weather. Um, you know, they could have imperiled, the, they could have impaneled this grand jury for any number of reasons. And it certainly doesn't mean that Trump is going to be charged in Florida or anything like that. What it means is that they do think there's evidence of criminal wrongdoing going on in Florida as well as in Washington, D.C. Now, up until a few weeks ago, Alex, it looked like this case was headed toward Jack Smith indicting in Florida. But Donald Trump himself made D.C. a lot more likely when he appeared on a CNN town hall and said, I made all these classification decisions in Washington, D.C. And that was, I'm sure, uh, music to Jack Smith's ears. So you could have the prosecutions going in both places, one for Trump in D.C. and others like Walt Nuda, uh, the valet in, in Florida. They could both be brought in one place. It wouldn't shock me if at the end of the day, this becomes a conspiracy set of charges and it all takes 
place in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I mean, when you outline the actions in and around, oh, the flooding of the IT room by an unsuspecting maintenance worker who also played a role in moving boxes in and out of a storage room, the picture of who else might be implicated in this scheme down in Florida appears to be clearer. Do you think there's any, you seem to dismiss out of hand the idea that Trump could be criminally indicted in Florida. The New York Times kind of almost made a case for that, given all the action that is um, convened around Trump and the documents at Mar-a-Lago. But you seem you sound fairly certain that you think if uh, Jack Smith pursues an indictment, it will be in Washington, D.C. Am I reading that correctly? Well, Alex, it can occur in either place. The Justice Department will be on very strong footing. It seems like Washington, D.C., according to uh, former President Trump's own words, is the locus of decision making. So I think it's going to be there. And then with respect to all this new evidence that you're talking about emerging, like Mark Meadows possibly testifying on this, like the flooded pool and so on. All of that may be helpful evidence, but I think it's important for viewers to understand that's not the criminal case. The criminal case, it's helpful, but it's just helpful. I mean, the criminal case has been strong for months. I mean, Bill Barr, of all people, months ago said that this was the gravest threat to President Trump in terms of criminal jeopardy. And that's because we've known so many things for so many months that he had more than 100 classified and other national security documents at his uh, country club that he had them, even though his attorneys swore he hadn't had them. We knew how significant these documents were, you know, nuclear secrets and the like. We knew that a federal judge had already said that a crime had been committed here, and it was such a serious crime they had to pierce the attorney-client privilege. We also knew that our nation's second highest court signed off on that ruling, uh, the D.C. Circuit. And, you know, we also knew about these dress rehearsals that you just mentioned a moment ago, these boxes being moved here and there. So, There is so much here, Alex, and that's why, you know, it may appear breathless, I know to our viewers, that we're all talking about, you know, this indictment potentially coming this week. Uh, And that's because the evidence so far looks overwhelming of Donald Trump's guilt. Uh, And I, I, and I, I, I hear what you're saying about the overwhelming evidence we have thus far. I would assume that things like pool drainage would further buttress an obstruction uh, case if that's indeed what Jack Smith is pursuing. But if we could, can we discuss Mark Meadows for a minute? Because this this fellow has been like the white rabbit in um, Alice in Wonderland. Nobody's known kind of where he's at. Everybody wants to chase him and find out what he has. Um, if he has testified in front of a federal grand jury, presumably he would be testifying about things he was trying to shield uh, using the claim of executive privilege, right? Is, is that a fair assessment of, of what kind of goods he may be giving up behind the scenes? Certainly Meadows was invoking executive privilege and trying not to testify. All of those claims went to the Supreme Court. They rejected it eight to one. So uh, he now has to testify. Now, whether he's going to say, I forgot and, you know, and so on, who knows? Um, You know, if Meadows truly has flipped, I think everything falls apart for Trump even more than it already has, because there's nothing more important in Trump world than kind of complete and unwavering loyalty. And if his own former chief of staff isn't no longer loyal to him, why would anyone else be? Um, so, you know, we've already seen this with some of Trump's past chief, past chiefs of staff. So the same thing may be going on here. And then with respect to the way you started with the pool, um, look, it seems really suspicious, like so much else in Trump world. You know, when it comes to Trump, everything is worse than even it looks. Um, but, you know, I talked to some architects today. They say no one would ever build an IT room <laughs> near pool drains like that just doesn't happen. 
Now, to be fair to Donald Trump, maybe he built the house the way he built his tried to build and govern this country. I don't know. But it sure does seem suspicious at the end of the day. And you're right. It furthers this narrative of an obstruction of justice by Donald Trump. It's one thing to steal the documents. It's another thing to lie about it afterwards and try and hinder an investigation. That's why I think Jack Smith essentially has no choice here but to indict Donald Trump. I appreciate that you've been talking to architects, Neil. We have been scouring the internet looking for pictures and dimensions of the Mar-a-Lago pools. So we're in the same boat on that front. One more question for you about Jack Smith, who met with, we've, we saw the man in person today. I think he had gone to innocently get a, a, a Subway sandwich and was spotted by our NBC reporters. He has not said anything on this topic, unsurprisingly, but he has been meeting or he was in the meeting with Trump's lawyers yesterday who have claimed prosecutorial misconduct in the special counsel's probe and demanded a meeting with uh, Merrick Garland. As far as we know, Merrick Garland did not attend these meetings, but Jack Smith appears to be meeting or has met with Trump's lawyers. How do you read that? Is that just a pro forma exercise at the end of an investigation? Do you think Trump's lawyers will continue to make this case with any success that uh, they were somehow defense lawyers for Trump's team were strong armed by DOJ prosecutors, investigators in this probe. Yeah. So two things. One, strong armed and abusive. I mean, give me a break. I mean, you know, their claim is that the attorney client privilege was violated here. They made that argument to a very respected trial court judge who blew it out of the water. And then they made it to our nation's second highest court, the D.C. Circuit, which unanimously blew it out of the water. It was so strong an opinion, evidently, that Trump didn't even try and take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I think those claims fall on deaf ears. Second, I think that the meeting with Jack Smith is important because it does really telegraph at least Team Trump thinks they're at the end of the road of this part of the investigation, not January 6th, but the stolen documents about Mar-a-Lago, because it's kind of the last ditch move you make as a defense attorney. And I've certainly sat in on those meetings at the Justice Department in which, uh, you know, you go in as a defense attorney and say to the prosecutor, here's why you shouldn't indict. And it's your last card to play. They played it. I suspect it's not a very good hand that they had. And that's why, again, I think, you know, Jack Smith took the meeting as he should. He doesn't have to. They don't always. But he did take it. But I think at the end of the day, that's not going to dissuade anything from happening. Neil Katyal, always good to talk to you. Legal wisdom and advice for estate planning and where you should put your IT room in relation to your swimming pool. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Coming up, we will have even more on this breaking news that former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows has testified to the special counsel's grand jury. We will get reaction to that from Congressman Jamie Raskin, who served on the January 6th investigation and was, of course, the lead impeachment manager and former President Trump's impeachment over the events of January 6th. Stay with us. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial. One of the big takeaways from this is 
Is our system flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it? Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Two weeks ago, CNN reported on something that was bothering Trump's legal team. The unusual silence from former chief of staff Mark Meadows. Trump lawyers at that point were totally in the dark about whether Meadows was cooperating with special counsel Jack Smith's two investigations, one into Trump's actions around January 6th and the other about his handling of classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago. One Trump advisor told CNN, no one really knows what Meadows is doing. Then last week, it was The New York Times picking up on a similar thread. Meadows' silence has caused suspicion and frustration in Trump's orbit, particularly after the revelation that the special counsel has a 2021 recording where Trump admits to possessing a classified document during a meeting about Mark Meadows' memoir. According to The Times, the existence of the recording opens up new questions, including what role Mr. Meadows might be playing in providing information to investigators. Now, for weeks, a central question in Trump legal world has been, where in the world is Mark Meadows and what is he up to? And now we have an answer, or at least a big part of an answer. Today, The New York Times reports that Mr. Mark Meadows has testified before a federal grand jury. ABC News reports tonight that as part of his testimony, investigators asked Meadows about both of the special counsel's probes, Mar-a-Lago and January 6th. In terms of timing, we do not yet know when Mr. Meadows testified, but the bottom line is that we do now know that the man who was there for pivotal meetings leading up to January 6th, the man who was one of Trump's representatives to the National Archives as it tried to obtain Trump's presidential records, that guy has spoken under oath to a federal grand jury. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, former member of the January 6th committee and the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee. Congressman, thank you so much for being here tonight. I, as someone who knows the January 6th congressional investigation so well, I, I wonder what topics were off limit to your committee because Mr. Meadows was claiming executive privilege and, and that presumably are not going to be off, to, off limit to the special counsel that you'd like to know about. Well, you'll recall that uh, Mark Meadows pulled the plug on his participation with the committee when uh, Donald Trump uh, blew his top. Originally, Meadows turned over um, thousands of texts and different communications, and we were uh, expecting to have him come in and to pursue it. But um, Donald Trump put an end to all of that, and um, they they made the assertion of executive privilege, which, of course, we didn't accept because executive privilege doesn't cover criminal um, activity. And um, he wasn't acting as a lawyer, so attorney-client privilege didn't operate. But in any event, um, look, Mark Meadows 
was there from the beginning. So he would have been privy to conversations that Donald Trump was engaged in about all of his efforts to overthrow the presidential election of 2020. And so that would include trying to get Vice President Pence to step outside of his constitutional role and just to proclaim Donald Trump the victor or kick the whole election into the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election he'd be uh, perfectly well aware of and perhaps integrally involved in the efforts to get um, the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, just to find Trump uh, thousands of votes that didn't exist, the efforts to get the state legislatures to oust uh, majorities for Joe Biden and just substitute slates of Donald Trump electors. So he would have been aware of all of that. But he also was clearly privy to the conversations and the actions surrounding the violent insurrection that took place at the Capitol. And you'll recall that Cassidy Hutchinson quoted Mark Meadows to the effect of uh, President Trump was not trying to stop the um, the ongoing insurrection that had laid siege to the Capitol. You'll recall uh, some awkward uh, the questioning of the White House uh, counsel, Pat Cipollone, where Liz Cheney said to him, um, you know, was everyone in the White House interested uh, essentially in stopping the insurrection? And he said, uh, yes, I can't think of anybody who wasn't. And then he was asked the question, I think, by Adam Schiff, including the president. And then Cipollone said, oh, well, she was referring to the staff. And she said, no, I was referring to anyone in the White House. And he turned nervously to his lawyer to try to determine how he should answer. And he just said, well, you know, that's that's covered by attorney-client privilege. And I was talking about the staff. So um, there clearly are people who understand what Donald Trump's determination and intent were during that three-hour period when the commander-in-chief just went AWOL. Nobody heard from him uh, at the Army. Nobody heard from him in the Navy, the Marines, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the D.C. police, the Capitol Police. None of it. He was just missing. But there are people who certainly know what he was saying, what he was thinking, and what he was doing during that time. And one of those people is undoubtedly his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Yeah. I mean, and when you outline the number of scenarios where Mark Meadows played a pivotal role or was sort of central in the discussions, it becomes clear that any cooperation from Mr. Meadows is at Trump's legal peril. And I, and I guess I wonder if you think that is a reason why you're seeing what you're seeing in Congress, because it increasingly looks like as the special counsel's probe, this, the walls of the special counsel investigation grow closer and closer to Donald Trump, the efforts by his Republican allies in Congress seem more clearly designed to offer a lifeline to uh, President Trump by undermining the investigations themselves. I mean, I have to call everybody's attention to the fact that Jim Jordan, who is the chair of the Judiciary Committee, today wrote a letter uh, to A.G. Garland demanding an unredacted uh, memorandum outlining the scope of Mr. Smith's probes regarding President Trump and any supporting documentation related to his appointment as special counsel. This seems like that page in the Trump playbook, Congressman, where it's like, if you can't beat the investigation, investigate the investigators. Is that is what is that's what ha is happening right now? Well, bingo. I think you've got the whole thing. I mean, uh, Mark Meadows's uh, testimony is um, 
of lethal peril to Trump's uh, legal defense if Meadows tells the truth. Um, and the truth here is really the enemy of the Trump defense, which is why what's happening in Congress is a sustained attack on anyone who dares investigate or prosecute Donald Trump. We saw it with District Attorney Bragg in New York, where they subpoenaed him, they attacked him, they began to uh, rail ag against him. Now they're attacking the Department of Justice because of the progress of uh, Jack Smith's special counsel investigation into the multiple crimes uh, that uh, almost certainly were committed by Donald Trump. So they're going after the prosecutors. And now, of course, they're trying to distract everybody by uh, recycling um, the most uh, antique claims that had been circulated by Rudy Giuliani about Burisma and Ukraine. Uh, they say that there's one uh, little factoid they claim that was in this um, Form 1023 that the FBI made where there was a secondhand allegation by a Ukrainian oligarch made to uh, an undercover source who passed it on to the FBI. And they want to make that the basis for uh, trying to discredit the whole FBI now. But the problem for them is that Attorney General William Barr, who, of course, was Donald Trump's uh, AG, immediately appointed the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania, Scott Brady, uh, to head up a team of prosecutors and FBI agents to fully investigate um, that um, uh, that tip. Um, and they came back completely empty handed. And as the uh, FBI uh, senior personnel who came to see us this week in Congress uh, explained it to us, there are three levels of an FBI investigation. There's an assessment level, there's a preliminary investigation, and there's an investigation. And they were at the assessment level looking at that tip to determine if there was any factual basis to it. And they could find no sufficient factual basis even to move to a preliminary investigation. And they just closed the investigation down. And that was the end of it. So um, now the Republicans on the House Oversight Committee say, say, let's go back to that original tip that was the basis for the whole Department of Justice investigation set up by William Barr um, that went from January to August of 2020 and ended up with nothing, and let's do the whole thing all over again. But it's really just an attempt to discredit and undermine uh, the FBI and get Donald Trump's poll numbers up again, which is what uh, Chairman Comer said was essentially the measure of the success of his committee. It's why they've investigated. They want to continue to investigate Hillary Clinton's role in the 2016 election and had about 2000 Benghazi investigations. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you as always for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. You bet. Still more to come this evening. If you thought indicted Congressman George Santos was one of the most, shall we say, colorful characters in Washington, D.C. these days, I have news for you. It is coming up. Plus, we get into what the two newest GOP presidential candidates have in common, and it is not just having their lives threatened by Donald Trump. That's next. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera 
Whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Beware of the leader in this country who you have handed leadership to, who has never made a mistake, who has never done anything wrong, who when something goes wrong, it's always someone else's fault, and who has never lost. <laughs> I've lost. You people did that to me in 2016. <laughs> I came back to New Hampshire to tell all of you that I intend to seek the Republican nomination for President of the United States in 2024. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie formally launched his 2024 presidential campaign at a town hall in New Hampshire earlier this evening, and he is not the only one jumping into the Republican primary pool this week. Former Vice President Mike Pence is expected to make a formal announcement of his bid for the presidency tomorrow after filing campaign paperwork yesterday. So that is one thing that Chris Christie and Mike Pence have in common. They both will have announced their 2024 presidential campaigns by the end of this week. They are also two men who have had their lives threatened by the former president they once served. In 2021, Christie said it was undeniable that he had gotten COVID from Trump the year prior, landing him in intensive care for a week. As for Pence... Well, there was that angry mob of Trump supporters chanting, hang Mike Pence at the Capitol on January 6th. But in addition to those two unusual commonalities, the campaign announcements and the life-threatening situations, courtesy of Donald Trump, there is also this common thread they share. It is entirely unclear which Republican voters the two presidential campaigns are courting. Both of these men are polling, on average, far behind Donald Trump and his nearest competitor, Governor Ron DeSantis. Mike Pence is polling at just under 4%. Chris Christie at just 1%. Joining me now are Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Steve Kornacki, MSNBC national correspondent in a jacket. Thank you both for being here, Steve. Let me first start with you. What is reasonably, emphasis on the word reasonably, the best case scenario for Chris Christie here? I think for Chris Christie, it's it's some form in his mind of redemption, because back in 2016, if you remember, he had that takedown moment of Marco Rubio in the debate just before the New Hampshire primary. It had the effect of basically sealing New Hampshire for Trump. Then Christie drops out, endorses Trump, and is really aligned with Trump then through the Trump presidency. And the way things end with the Trump presidency, first of all, Christie never quite got out of that presidency what yeah. he wanted. He was consistent. Blocked. I think Jared Kushner had a lot to do with that. And then it ends with Trump denying the 2020 election results. It ends with January 6th. And it ends, I think, with Christie sort of looking around and saying, you know, geez, I, I put my neck on the line for this guy. So I think Christie relishes the opportunity. I don't know if he's going to get it. But you can see from that town hall tonight, he relishes the opportunity to get on stage with Donald Trump and say things to Donald Trump's face in a way that he thinks no Republican has in eight years 
said to Donald Trump to his face. I don't know if he's going to get that moment, but I think that's what he wants. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think this is some sort of like personal redemption tour. But Mark, you have a great uh, interview with uh, Christie in the Atlantic from last month. And there's this amazing quote from Christie. I'll read it to everybody who has not yet read the piece. I'm not going to dwell on this, Mark, Christie said. You guys drive me crazy. All you want to do is talk about Trump. I'm sorry. I don't think he's the only topic to talk about in politics. And I'm not going to waste my hour with you this morning, which is a joy and a gift on just continuing talking, asking, and answering the Donald Trump question from 18 different angles. Does Chris Christie not realize that is the whole point of Chris Christie as a presidential candidate? No, which is absurd because, you know, he then went up to New Hampshire and talked about Donald Trump a million different ways. I mean, that's what was so bizarre about that interview. But but I do think, look, I mean, the, there is one reason that, that Chris Christie is in this race, um, and that is because he is extremely adept at, you know, potentially taking some real shots at Donald Trump. He knows Donald Trump better than most. He obviously has known for a long time. He can, uh, he's much more nimble, uh, at least oratorially, um, in a, in a format like this. And, you know, that makes Chris Christie, um, you know, much more compelling, at least to me, than most of the other candidates. Um, you know, I don't think it's likely that Chris Christie is ever going to have the song, uh, Hail to the Chief played for him. Um, and, you know, Mike Pence, too, but I do think that that both of them, but especially Christie, um, could be a very you know not just entertaining, but actually a, a very very kind of litigious and very very compelling uh, foil to Donald Trump if you know if this goes forward the way I think it's going to go. Yeah, Steve, you you alluded, you foreshadowed that Christie may not actually make it to the stage with Donald Trump. Tell me a little bit about the biggest hurdles you see for him qualifying for the debates. Yeah, three things have to happen here for Christie to get this moment with Trump, if that is what he's looking for. Number one, the first Republican debate is going to be the end of August. They say three polls, you got to hit 1%. That's either three national polls or two national and one of the early state polls. Now, there was a national poll last week for Monmouth. Christie was at zero. So he, 1% is not automatic from in the polls. Then he's also got to get 40,000 donations. They can be small donations. Unique but he's donations. Right, 40,000 people got to give to the campaign. And, he's and can they all be a, Democrats? I'm just kidding. <laughs> and he's also, he's, this is the interesting part, too. He's got to sign a pledge that he will back the Republican nominee. That seems so like the highest tilt to climb. It's interesting because if, if part of this campaign is disqualifying, in his view, disqualifying Donald Trump, he's got to simultaneously say he'd support Trump as the nominee. But if he does all of that, he can make the debate. But then there's two more hurdles. The first is, does Trump show up? Does Trump actually, because Trump is sending out signals, he may not even debate. And then if Trump shows up, if enough Republicans meet the criteria, because we're seeing more and more get in, they may have two divisions here and they may have two nights. And so Christie could qualify. Trump could participate. And maybe they're just not on the same night. And he still doesn't get the chance. So there's a lot that he has to have go his way. There, there is a lot. There are a lot of hills to climb, Mark. And then there's just the reality of the support that Christie can get and sort of make the case for staying in the race. He dropped out after New Hampshire in 2016. I think he spent more than 70 days in the state. He held 160 events and 60 town halls, and he got 7% of the primary vote. I mean, is Christie the kind of guy that's just going to hang in this to hang in this? He didn't. He wasn't that guy last time. Well, I mean, he got to New Hampshire. I mean, like, look, I mean, I, the bulk of the campaign was were those several months of 2015, ultimately, where he did get on the stage. I, I think I agree with Steve. I think it's probably less likely than than likely that he'll get on a stage with Trump. I mean, I, I do think, though, that, that he doesn't necessarily have to get on that stage. He can give speeches like today. And I think, you know, 
Christie is probably going to get more press attention than he would deserve, given given how much chance he actually has of winning, which is pretty small. Christie's very good at drawing press attention. He's also very good at one-liners. And, and frankly, he does have the feel to himself in terms of someone who actually has the uh, cojones to— can you say that on TV? Yes, he, it's a family the, program. Who has the—okay, well, you know, it's, it's not English. Um, the, but he can actually, uh, you know, do things that actually will get attention and actually can get under Donald Trump's skin, which is a real skill— and especially if Donald Trump comes back at him, then you have a real spectacle, which could probably draw him some support and certainly some small donor money. Why is Mike Pence running, Steve? I think Mike Pence, well, I think there's a great tradition of former vice presidents saying, okay. I made it this far. Is there a and shot to get the ultimate one? And having a gallows erected in their name on that. I mean, you know, this is a man with an extraordinary backstory and not a lot of favor in the, inside the Republican Party. Well, it's interesting. If you look at that Monmouth poll that came out last week and you ask Republican voters positive, negative view, and you list all the candidates, the least popular is Christie. And by far, it was 21 po- uh, favorable, 47 unfavorable. The second least popular is Pence. 46 favorable, but 35 percent unfavorable. Look, I I think Pence, when he looks at it, he has always had a strong connection with the reason he was on the ticket, strong connection with evangelical Christian voters. You look at Iowa. It's a caucus state. It's dominated by evangelical Christian voters. Trump actually lost Iowa in 2016. So I imagine if you're Pence, you're looking at Iowa and you're wondering, geez, is there some way that I can tap into that, that they're averse to Trump? that I could get a win in Iowa. And then they all say, if I could get a win in Iowa, I can roll it into here and here and here and here. It, it usually doesn't work out, but I imagine that's that's something to do with the calculation. There are many reasons to love you, Steve Kornacki, but your even-handedness with even the <laughs> candidates facing the longest of odds is something to applaud. Mark Leibovich, it is always great to see you. Steve Kornacki, thanks for joining Thank me, my friend. When we come back, a look at the new normal in a post-Trump Washington, D.C., and the grifters, climbers, and gamblers trying to make their mark in the nation's capital. That is next. Remember back in 2015 when former Republican Congressman Aaron Schock renovated his D.C. office in the style of the British period drama Downton Abbey? America first learned about the Illinois congressman's Anglophile decor when The Washington Post published this piece by writer Ben Terrace. Quote, he's got a Downton Abbey-inspired office, but Representative Aaron Schock won't talk about it. There was a reason that Congressman Schock did not want to talk about it, because he had broken Congress's rules on accepting large gifts when he allowed a company called Eurotrash LLC to provide him with the $40,000 renovation free of charge. He may also have broken the rules of good taste, but that is another matter entirely. Anyway, that initial report from Ben Terrace, it led to a flurry of investigations into Congressman Schock's spending habits. And ultimately, it was discovered that Congressman Schock had spent tens of thousands of dollars in taxpayer money and campaign funds on everything from private jet flights to Katy Perry tickets. Within weeks of that reporting, Aaron Schock resigned from Congress in disgrace which is very different from how things go down now. In the never-ending saga of Congressman George Santos, last month the Justice Department charged Mr. Santos with 13 counts of fraud, money laundering, and theft of public funds. But George Santos has steadfastly refused calls for his resignation, even as his case continues to get hairier. Just today, George Santos's lawyers were in court pleading with the federal judge not to reveal the names of the people who posted Santos's half a million dollar bond after his arrest. The judge denied that request and pending an appeal from Santos, 
We could learn as soon as this week who paid all of that money to get George Santos out of jail as he awaits trial. But the Santos saga is a stunning example of how Washington works in the post-Trump era. Before Trump, even the hint of a spending scandal could cause an up-and-coming congressman to resign in disgrace. But the Trump era has created a new model for alleged grifters like George Santos. And that phenomenon is at the center of a new book by the same writer who first broke the story of Aaron Schock's Downton Abbey office eight years ago. The book is called The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. In it, the Washington Post's Ben Terrace writes, Washington felt different under Trump. Trump, but what about once he left? Who was allowed to become powerful, and from where would they draw that power? What were the rules of the game, and how did you win? I wanted to explore these questions by spending time with people who were trying to make post-Trump Washington work for them. Joining me now is Washington Post writer Ben Terrace, author of The Big Break, which just hit shelves today. Congratulations, Ben. Thank you. You have survived day one almost of the book tour. Um, It's a fascinating study of characters. It's at once damning and slightly hopeful, I'll say. But for people who aren't familiar with the constellation of interesting personalities that now populate Washington, D.C. in a post-Trump era, could you tell the story of Robert Strick? Because I think he's kind of emblematic of this new generation. Sure. Yeah. Well, Robert Strick is a fascinating character, right? He is a lobbyist who, before Donald Trump, like this was never really successful. Uh, But when Donald Trump came to town and there was nobody around who was prepared to kind of take advantage of... That's him. That's him. (laughs) uh, To take advantage of, of, you know, this new normal, Strick was able to figure it out. And, And he had this really crazy story about how he was able to come to power, basically. He made millions and millions of dollars under Donald Trump. And the way it started was he was celebrating at the Four Seasons Hotel uh, after Donald Trump won. And he was kind of a low-level Trump guy. And a dog sniffs his crotch, which is bizarre. And a woman comes and is apologetic about it. And turns out she works for the New Zealand embassy and is having a difficult time connecting her country to Donald Trump because everybody's expecting Hillary Clinton was going to win. Yeah. But, you know, Donald Trump is hard to get in touch with. Robert Strick says, oh, I can do that. And and some and has I think to this day he has never met Donald Trump. Is that right? He met him one time, as far as I can tell. He told me that he met him backstage. He said he was doing something with his hair, putting a lot of spray in his hair. Yeah. And, you know that sounds right. And so he said he met him once, but he doesn't have a, a strong connection. But he had enough of a connection to make it work. I mean, and make it work to the tune of millions and millions of dollars in lobbying contracts after literally a dog sniffs his crotch at the Four Seasons. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you can't make up. It's out of like a Coen Brothers film. Yeah. And yet. This is the sort of new normal in Washington, which at one point suggests to me that uh, the institutional barriers have been broken down. And maybe that in and of itself is a good thing, but also that everybody's profiting to the degree that it feels like a grift. I mean, what is your sense having looked at sort of the the, the legacy of Trump as it has shaped my my form, my hometown? Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of people can do that and, and, and just come in and it can be a grift. Right. They can decide that. All right. Nobody is here taking advantage of of this new normal, but I can. And they can sell their access to Donald Trump. Robert Strick was able to tell enough countries that, look, I can get you access to the people that matter. And maybe he could. Um, He had phone numbers that could, you know, he could connect them. And for a country that has 
billions of dollars, being able to spend just a couple million to be able to get in touch with a new administration is very valuable. You know, part of me says, okay, this is the legacy of Trump, but I would say coming in and and being a creature not of Washington, but of a new generation of policymakers and leaders and advocates was something that Barack Obama did, right? And people looked at that as, or Democrats looked at that as a good thing. Do you see any cross-pollination between what happened in the aftermath of the Obama years and what the sort of how Trump picked up on that and to some degree bastardized that. I think the thing about the Trump era is everything just got really weird, right? <laughs> yes. Like this, this book is filled with characters. Uh, you know, I kind of think of it like Veep, right? If you watch Veep, yes. you'll laugh your way through it, but you'll also be like, this is dark and twisted and, and, and weird and, and not good. I think that's what the book does, right? Is it, it shows that, you know, you can you could laugh your way through this book and also realize that things are not in, in a good place right now. Right. In the way that when politics mirrors Veep, it's both hilarious and completely unnerving and distressing yeah. at large. Ben Terrace, author of Big Break. Congrats, Ben. It's a great read and it's a perfect time to be releasing it. We will be right back. Thank you. One last thing tonight, a very important programming note. Tomorrow evening, I will have the pleasure of having my good friends and hosts of the Pod Save America podcast, John Favreau, John Lovett, and Tommy Vitor, on this show to discuss everything from the looming potential of another Trump indictment to the current state of our democracy. We will also talk about that ever-expanding 2024 GOP primary field. So stay tuned. You will not want to miss this one tomorrow night, 9 p.m. That does it for us. I'll see you again tomorrow.